Hello, everyone. Welcome to A Good Night for a Murder, a Victorian true crime podcast. My name is Kim, and on this podcast, I cover all sorts of Victorian true crime stories. Many are murder cases, but I've also covered the exploits of famous con men and con women, and even a Victorian cult in season one. While tonight's case is not something one could have been criminally prosecuted for in the Victorian era, it was something one could bring a civil case against, and that is the crime of adultery. What we're covering tonight is a highly publicized Victorian-era sex scandal involving a hotshot minister, a prominent author and abolitionist, and his high society wife. This is the story of the Beecher-Tilton scandal. But first, a Victorian society tip. Many of the players in our story tonight were heavily involved in social reforms that caught fire during the end of the 19th century, such as the abolition of slavery and the suffrage movement. I thought it would be interesting to look into what advice might be being offered to women wanting to join the suffrage movement at the time, but what I found is even better. I found a pamphlet published in 1915 titled How It Feels to Be the Husband of a Suffragette. The author is simply listed as him. Here are a few excerpts I found particularly entertaining, and if you're interested in reading it in its entirety, you can find the link in the episode blog on my website. First, he writes, We share our family finances. She has her own income, bank accounts, and investments quite independent of me. All you've got to do is to translate that into masculine terms to find out how it works. Which friend do you enjoy more? The one who is constantly coming to you begging for small sums of money and exhibiting unexpected bills? or the one who seldom discusses money matters with you, yet who likes you well enough to go flat broke for you if the occasion arises. The author goes on to say, She didn't stop with the finishing school, as so many of them do. She went right on trying to learn things that were worthwhile, trying to get better acquainted with life, trying to economize the effort spent in drudgery and utilize the time saved for better things, trying to stop waste in order to enjoy plenty. I remember when her books were comparatively simple. Now, I don't know where her reading is going to take her next, but I don't care. Like the bee, she brings back sweetness from every field. He does share this negative bit, though. There is this, however, about living in a house with a woman who takes a kind, warm, vital interest in everything that is going on in the world. And you can, if you like, count it as one of the hardships of being a suffragette's husband. You have to, at times, force yourself to seem more intelligent than you really feel like being. I have to say, I found his account rather refreshing. But what are the suffragettes saying about choosing a husband? The following piece is from 1918, titled Advice on Marriage to Young Ladies, authored by an anonymous suffragette wife. It begins, do not marry at all. But if you must, avoid the beauty men, flirts, the bounders, tailors, dummies, and football enthusiasts. Look for a strong, tame man, a fire lighter, coal getter, window cleaner, and yard swiller. Don't expect too much. Most men are lazy, selfish, thoughtless, lying, drunken, clumsy, heavy-footed, rough, unmanly brutes, and need taming. All bachelors are, and many are worse still. If you want him to be happy, feed the brute. The same remark applies to dogs. You will be wiser not to chance it. It isn't worth the risk. Hello everyone, welcome back. The podcast took an unexpected hiatus for a bit there, but now I am back and I am going to do my best to get back on schedule. I do have two new Patreon members to welcome. 
Welcome to Jacqueline and Haley. Thank you so much for joining, and I am so glad you're here. And I just want to take a moment to thank all of my Patreon members. I hope you all are enjoying the bonus content, and I really look forward to continuing to grow that community. A Good Night for a Murder is a true crime podcast that does cover stories including death, violence, sexual assault, and other adult themes. This episode does include brief mentions of pregnancy loss and domestic violence. Please take care while listening. We'll start with Henry Ward Beecher. He was born in June of 1813 in Indiana to Lyman Beecher and Roxana Foote. Henry had eight brothers and sisters and four half-brothers and sisters from his father's second marriage. Of his father's 13 children, nine went on to become reputable authors, including Harriet Beecher Stowe, who authored the highly influential abolitionist novel Uncle Tom's Cabin. Like his father, Beecher grew up to become a congressionalist minister, but he wasn't a regular preacher, he was a cool preacher. Henry would deliver his sermons in a really down-to-earth, relatable way, incorporating humor, dialect, and slang. He also had some pretty progressive ideas. He was very interested and active in social reform and was a known abolitionist of slavery and supporter of women's suffrage. At one point, he was elected unanimously as the president of the American Women's Suffrage Association. He supported Charles Darwin's theory of evolution, describing himself as a cordial Christian evolutionist. What he's arguably most well-known for, though, was his emphasis on preaching God's love. His view differed from older ways of thinking that focused on the inherent sinfulness of all men and women. Beecher preached God's absolute love for everyone and believed in a God that would not punish us for being human. His sermons drew the likes of Walt Whitman, Mark Twain, and even Abraham Lincoln. During the Civil War, Lincoln had so much faith in Beecher's abilities, he sent Beecher on a speaking tour of England to gain support for the Union's cause. So far is his personal life, though. Beecher married Eunice Bullard in 1837, but out of the gate, the marriage was not a happy one. Beecher was often away from home, putting much stress on the relationship, and six of the couple's ten children died very young. Plus, it was often rumored that Beecher frequently engaged in extramarital affairs. These rumors went all the way back to his early days of preaching in Indiana and followed him when the family moved to New York in 1847. In 1858, the newspaper The Brooklyn Eagle ran a story alleging the minister engaged in an affair with a young woman in his congregation who was now working as a sex worker. Beecher made waves again in his social circle when rumors of an affair with author Edna Dean Proctor, with whom he was writing a book of sermons, surfaced. Edna claimed that Beecher had, in fact, raped her, but Beecher asserted that it had been consensual, though neither denies something happened. Despite the wildly different versions of their story, they did, in fact, carry on an affair for about a year, and it doesn't sound like it was very well concealed. In fact, when talking about Beecher, historian Barry Worth noted that it was, quote, standard gossip that Beecher preaches to seven or eight of his mistresses every Sunday evening. The next introductions we need to make are that of Theodore Tilton and Elizabeth Richards. Theodore and Elizabeth met likely in their teen years. Theodore was a friend of Elizabeth's younger brother, and she tutored both boys in their school subjects. When Theodore's family decided to move from New York to New Jersey, Theodore boarded with the Richards family. They all attended Plymouth Church in Brooklyn, where Beecher preached. Theodore would go on to become a newspaper editor and poetry author, and Elizabeth would become quite active in the women's rights movements. In fact, she would go on to become a contributor and editor to the official publication of the National Women's Suffrage Association, The Revolution. The organization itself was founded by Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony. And this is to give you an idea of the caliber of the social circle Theodore, Elizabeth, and even Beecher are running in. 
They're like Victorian-era disruptors for social reform. They support abolition and women's rights. Really forward-thinking stuff by the day's standards. So in October of 1855, Theodore and Elizabeth are married, and the ceremony is performed by Henry Ward Beecher. The next year, Theodore finds work writing for a newspaper called The Independent. The paper is owned and founded by a man named Henry Chandler Bowen. Five years later, Beecher becomes the editor-in-chief of the paper with Theodore as his assistant. So these three men and their families, Beecher, Bowen, and Theodore Tilton, are quite close. They spend a lot of time having dinners at one another's homes and the like. Remember what I said, though, about Beecher having a reputation as a bit of a philanderer? Rumors start to swirl that Beecher is having an affair with his boss's wife, Lucy Bowen. And in 1863, we find out that is true when Lucy makes a deathbed confession to her husband. The next thing you know, Theodore has replaced Beecher as editor-in-chief of The Independent. Throughout 1866 to 68, Theodore travels around the country on lecture tours for work. It's kind of common knowledge, you know, everyone knows, just nobody talks about it, that while he's away from home, Theodore cheats on his wife. Aside from the infidelity, Theodore and Elizabeth do not seem to share a happy home from the beginning. Despite her family letting him live under their own roof in his early years, he did not like his in-laws and he increasingly sought to separate Elizabeth from them. However, he didn't seem to actually like his wife that much either. Once he started to climb in his social circles, he was embarrassed of her. Although he himself had described her as a brilliant critic and undervalued literary mind, it could be her belief in spiritualism and involvement in spiritual circles that he found inappropriate for the wife of a respected newspaper editor. The couple had seven children over 14 years of marriage, though three died in infancy. And now, 10 years into the marriage, he's hardly home, traveling around the country, having affairs on her. One of his affairs, though, was close to home right there in New York, which was with his wife's own friend, Laura Bullard. In January 1868, the kettle starts to boil over. Theodore confesses his affairs to Elizabeth. That fall, Elizabeth strikes up a relationship with the couple's good friend and the man who married them, Henry Ward Beecher. Now, this will go on for about two years, though to this day, no one really knows if it was a physical affair or an emotional affair. In July of 1870, though, Elizabeth confesses her affair with Beecher to her husband. Now, Theodore has been having affairs left and right, so some may reason they could have just let the events lie and move on, but neither of them can stop talking about it to other people. A few months later, Theodore is dining at the home of Laura Bullard, who he has slept with in the past, and another friend in their circle, Elizabeth Caddy Stan. Stanton was another pillar of the women's rights movement. Theodore tells them his wife has been having an affair with Beecher. The same night, his wife is at home with Susan B. Anthony, again, all very well-to-do people in this circle, and she tells her about the affair and the confession to her husband. Theodore comes home, and there is some sort of confrontation amongst the three of them. Elizabeth says it was between Susan B. Anthony and her husband, but Susan B. Anthony says, no, Elizabeth and her husband were about to have a serious knockdown, drag-out fight right there in the sitting room. What ends up happening is that both women lock themselves in Elizabeth's room for the night. Susan B. Anthony 100% perceived this as sheltering Elizabeth from an irate husband. But Elizabeth was like, no, oh my God, it's not that serious. Obviously, that's not a direct quote, but it is the sentiment I get about the situation. I believe Susan B. Anthony in this case. A few months later, Elizabeth leaves New York to go stay with a friend in Ohio. She returns that December when there was reportedly a violent altercation between her and her husband. This prompts her to take her four children and flee to her mother's. 
Now, despite her travel to Ohio and brief return to her husband only to leave again, Elizabeth became pregnant again by him somewhere along the lines. I think it's reasonable that she might have realized she was pregnant during her time in Ohio, which is why she returned, but obviously this goes badly, and on December 24, 1870, Elizabeth suffers a miscarriage, citing, quote, anxiety night and day as the reason. A lot happens very rapidly after this. Elizabeth's mother, perhaps outraged on her daughter's behalf, writes to Theodore's boss, Henry Bowen, and is kind of like, hey, do you know what kind of person you have working for you? Bowen speaks to Theodore about this, who tells him, yeah, he's having a hard time in his marriage right now because his wife had an affair with Henry Ward Beecher. Now remember, Bowen's wife, Lucy, had also slept with Beecher. So however Bowen reacted to the part about Theodore abusing his wife is not mentioned. His takeaway seems to be that he and Theodore have this common enemy now in Beecher because he slept with both of their wives, allegedly. Now, I don't know why Bowen would not do this himself, but he encourages Theodore to demand that Beecher resign from the church. I'm speculating maybe it's what Bowen wanted to do all along, but he didn't want a scandal for himself. Anyway, two days later, Theodore writes to Beecher and says, Sir, I demand that, for reasons which you explicitly understand, you immediately cease from the ministry of Plymouth Church and that you quit the city of Brooklyn as a residence. Strong words. A few days after that, Elizabeth writes to Beecher and confirms that, yes, the reason her husband sent that letter is because she had confessed their affair to him. Shortly after that, though, it seems like Beecher has gotten to Elizabeth because in another letter to Beecher, she advised him that she has now told her husband it was a false confession and nothing ever happened. She then writes to Beecher again, though, and retracts the retraction of her confession, asserting that what she said the first time around is correct, the affair did happen, and she has told her husband. The day after that, she asks a mutual friend who has been operating as a go-between for Beecher and Theodore if he can just go to Beecher and get all of her letters back from him. This poor girl doesn't know whether she's coming or going, and I 100% believe now that she's been subjected to emotional and likely physical abuse by her husband and probably manipulated by Beecher too. All these letters are just responding to her abusers in whatever way she thinks will appease them. So even though Theodore did what Bowen asked, Bowen fires Tilton as editor-in-chief. He wants to report the news, not be the news, as they say. After this, Beecher and one of his buddies start up a paper and they hire Tilton. And if you're like, what the hell? I thought these two were enemies. Well, yes and no. At the end of the day, everyone involved, Elizabeth, Theodore, and Beecher, were just trying to go about business as usual, put the whole thing behind them, and pretend it never happened. They were hoping the whole thing would just blow over, and after a while, everyone would just forget and start talking about something else. And that's almost what happened. In spring of 1871, Theodore, still married to Elizabeth, of course, becomes involved with a woman named Victoria Woodhull. Victoria could be described by some as very much ahead of her time. She was an activist for women's rights and labor reforms, the first woman to operate a brokerage firm on Wall Street along with her sister. She owned and ran a newspaper and was nominated as the country's first female presidential candidate under the Equal Rights Party for the 1872 election. She was also a proponent of what she described as free love. By this, she meant that women had the right to love freely. They could exist in monogamous relationships as they wished without the pressure to marry, and they could also choose to leave a relationship or marriage if they wanted. She also believed that the decision to have sex, whether in or out of marriage, should be left entirely up to a woman to decide. She thought that because men could often physically overpower a woman, they should never be the ones who got to choose when sex happened. 
allowing the woman to choose, in her opinion, leveled the playing field for men and women in relationships. So far as her beliefs on marriage and relationships, Victoria existed in a time when women were little more than property of the men in their lives. They belonged to their husbands, and if not their husbands, their fathers or their uncles or their brothers. It was nearly impossible for a woman to escape a loveless or abusive marriage, and if she managed to do so, the social stigma that accompanied it could be even worse. Men, however, were repeatedly excused and even encouraged in many cases to step outside their marriages. Keeping mistresses was extremely common, tolerated, and even expected for men of a certain stature. And Victoria, who some say was abducted by and forced to marry an alcoholic and womanizing man 14 years her senior in the past, was sick of it. As an active supporter of women's rights, she often appeared at public speaking events where she would criticize society's tolerance for the transgressions of married men and promote her own ideas of the free love movement, which makes her involvement with Theodore, a married man, a little ironic. However, no one really knows what went on between the pair except the two of them. Now, Victoria, Beecher, Theodore Tilton, they were all pretty progressive thinkers for their time, right? And together, alongside the rest of their circle, they had a really good opportunity to influence and advance the way Americans lived their lives. So when Beecher not only refused to support but condemned Victoria's ideas of free love, when he in fact was very free with his love, she took that personally. And in November of 1872, she printed a special issue of her newspaper exposing the entire affair between the Tiltons and Henry Ward Beecher with Theodore Tilton as her primary source. She raked Beecher across the coals as a hypocrite, exposing details of his affair with Elizabeth Tilton that were so detailed and scandalous that she, her sister, and her husband, who owns and operated the newspaper together, were all three of them arrested on charges of distributing obscene material through the mail. This incident was the catalyst for the creation of the Comstock Laws, which made it illegal to send obscene, lewd, or lascivious, immoral, or indecent publications through the mail. The three were imprisoned for six months before the case was dismissed on a technicality, but this effectively wrecked Victoria's chances at running for president. Henry Ward Beecher was pretty pissed off about this, and Victoria was like, well, if it's not true, sue me for libel. But he wouldn't, which confirmed for a lot of people that everything Victoria published was indeed true. Now, all of Beecher and Theodore Tilton's friends were like, oh my god, what are you guys going to do about this? But the pair, plus Elizabeth, doubled down on their agreement just to not talk about it. Except, Theodore couldn't help himself, and he kept talking trash against Beecher, who, remember, is a widely known and well-respected preacher. Everyone knew he had affairs and still went to hear him preach well before this incident, so for many, their opinion of him didn't change much, and he still had their support. Because of this, the church kicked Theodore out of their membership ranks. Of course, not everyone agreed with this, including Beecher. He was kind of like, guys, please, let it go. But they dropped Theodore from their membership anyway. Theodore spoke to the pastor at another church who, on his behalf, wrote to the Council of Congressional Churches, basically tattling that they had disfellowed Theodore without any investigation on the allegations against Beecher. The council did investigate in March of 1874 and did take censure actions against the church. Now, remember back when this was all coming to light and Theodore got fired from his job? Then Beecher actually started up a newspaper that he effectively put Theodore in charge of? This is sort of a move to be like, hey, we're all friends here, nothing to see. Well, Tilton published a letter in that paper publicly accusing Beecher of having an affair with his wife. And now the congregation where Beecher preached has to respond. They opened an official investigation into Beecher and the news caught fire across the country. Where Victoria's story had been regarded as inappropriate gossip, now the whole thing was news with a capital N. 
Now, where has Elizabeth gone through all this? Well, a month after the church begins their investigation against Beecher, Elizabeth leaves her husband again, this time for good. Theodore asserts she's free to go as she's always been, but I don't believe him. The members of Beecher's church take Elizabeth in while the investigation is going on. During the investigation, Elizabeth claims she never made any such confession of an affair to her husband. By the end of August, the church has concluded their investigation and fully exonerated their pastor, Henry Ward Beecher. Given the spectacle the entire thing has become, it appears any agreement Beecher, Theodore, and Elizabeth had to keep silent about the matter is now null and void. Because the next thing that happened, in an effort to save face, I suppose, is that Theodore allowed 201 private letters between he and Elizabeth to be published in the Chicago Tribune. Next, Theodore sues Beecher for what was known as criminal conversation. Conversation is an old euphemism referring to sexual intercourse. So the term criminal conversation is referring to adultery. Now, adultery wasn't really a crime that was punishable by law at this time, but it was something one could bring a civil suit against. A similar allegation is called alienation of affections. Alienation of affections meant that the other man had caused the husband become alienated or unable to receive the affections of his wife. And in both these cases, the idea was that the woman was essentially property of her husband. If there was adultery in the marriage, the other man was effectively damaging the husband's property and he had the right to sue. The voice of the wife was completely silenced in these legal proceedings. She didn't even have the right to testify or make a statement in court. Now, I was curious, could a woman sue for criminal conversation? And from what I found, the answer in 1875 was no, simply because a wife couldn't legally own anything. If a woman did rarely own any assets of her own, ownership was transferred to her husband as soon as she got married. While the ability to sue for criminal conversation or alienation of affections has been abolished in most countries and U.S. states, there are a few states where a man or a woman can still sue for criminal conversation or alienation of affections. Usually, this comes up, unsurprisingly, as part of divorce proceedings. Now, we do need to get back to our story, so I won't go too much further down this rabbit hole, but I do talk a little bit more about this in the bonus content for this episode. The Beecher-Tilton trial began in January 1875 and has been referred to as America's first major clergy sexual abuse scandal. It received national press coverage and spectators clamored each day for a spot in the gallery. Now, even though these were public proceedings, the courts at first didn't even want to allow women into the gallery. But eventually, they allowed a select few in, including Elizabeth herself. The press reported endlessly on her appearance and demeanor. Wikipedia states that Elizabeth, who, mind you, was not permitted to testify or make any sort of statement, was described as both matronly and childlike, as pious and saintly, but also sensual and powerful. Those who knew the trio personally were divided. Many chose sides, some called all of them crazy and refused to take a stand one way or the other, and some members of Beecher's family even left the country while the trial was going on. Six months later, the case was finally turned over to the jury to deliberate. After eight days of deliberation, the jury deadlocked, and it was all over. Beecher returned to preaching, and his reputation was largely recovered. In February the following year, Plymouth Church responded to the civil lawsuit by opening another investigation into Beecher, where he was, again, exonerated. Church members who testified against Beecher were ultimately expelled for speaking disparagingly against their preacher. On March 6, 1887, Beecher died in his sleep from a stroke at the age of 74. He is buried at Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn, New York. Theodore Tilton moved to France, where he died in Paris in 1907 at the age of 72. 
Elizabeth, having lost her financial support, fell on hard times, but it sounds like members of Plymouth Church hired her as a tutor to help her get by. Before and during the trial, she often waffled back and forth about if she had any sort of affair, whether it be emotional or physical with Beecher at all. But after the trial, she made another statement asserting that their affair had been sexual in nature. And for this, she was also expelled from Plymouth Church. In later years, she lived with her daughter who had been widowed until she died in 1897 at the age of 63. She is also buried in the Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn, near where her infants who did not survive are buried. Her headstone simply reads, Grandmother. Victoria Woodall ended up marrying an English banker and moved to England where she remained after his death until she also died a wealthy widow in June 1927 at the age of 89. The public scandal and fallout that ensued from her publication of the Beecher Tilton scandal is said to have set back the women's suffrage movement by an entire generation due to the association of free love and immorality with women's rights. If you head over to Instagram or YouTube at A Goodnight for a Murder, you can let me know what you thought of tonight's episode there. On Instagram, I've posted some photos of all the major players in tonight's story, plus some trial illustrations, including a flip card portraying Beecher hiding under Miss Tilton's skirts. I tell you, these Victorians were ruthless sometimes. You can also see the photos and source links on the episode blog on my website at agoodnightforamurder.com. While you're on the website, you can sign up for the Goodnight for a Murder newsletter. Each month, I try to send an episode roundup, reveal of next month's episodes and other goodies like extra Victorian society tips, book recommendations, and more. Like everything else the past month, the newsletter also had to take a short break, but definitely sign up. It's a great way not to miss anything. The bonus content for Housekeeper and Butler to your Patreons for this episode is about more crimes and penalties of the Victorian era that might seem strange or excessive to us today. Listen through the outro music to hear a short preview of this Patreon bonus content. To subscribe to Patreon and learn more about the podcast, you can visit agoodnightforamurder.com. You can also follow me on Instagram, TikTok, or YouTube at agoodnightforamurder. Please rate and review and share with friends. Thank you for listening, and I will talk to you again soon. to accompany episode 31 about the Beecher Tilton scandal, we are going to talk about more crimes and penalties of the Victorian era that might seem strange or excessive to us today. The Beecher Tilton scandal took place in the 1870s in the U.S., where, as we discussed, adultery was not considered a criminal offense. But I was curious to know if it ever had been. I did not expect to learn that in a number of U.S. states, adultery is considered a misdemeanor and even a felony to this day. Though the crime is rarely prosecuted, penalties range from $10 to $500 fines up to five years in prison. The only known execution for adultery occurred in Massachusetts in 1643. In this case, 17-year-old Mary Latham had been rejected by a boy who she fancied. Despite him, Mary vowed to accept the next marriage proposal that came her way. And one quickly did. Mary married a much, much older man and quickly became unhappy in her marriage. So she started stepping out with various young men. The real trouble started for her, though, when she struck up an affair with a man named John Britton.